Have y'all ever heard of a guy named William Wilberforce? Anybody heard of him? A couple of you, a few of you there, about four hands. Uh, he was a guy who lived back in the 1700s, 1800s in England. Um, there's some, a, a very good book about him, biography written by Eric Metaxas, uh, before he wrote Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther. Uh, those books are like 1,000 pages. This one's only like 200 pages, so you can digest that one. Uh, but it's a biography on his life called Amazing Grace. Um, there's also a movie called Amazing Grace uh, based off of that book and the life of, of William uh, Wilberforce, uh, which is an appropriate title. Because uh, once he became a believer, his pastor was the man who wrote Amazing Grace, the song. And uh, Wilberforce grew up in England as a young man. His parents um, were not believers. They were a part of the Church of England, but they were not believers. Uh, they were a part of the church as far as it goes culturally to be a part of the church, to say they were a part of the church. But they came on hard financial times, and so they sent young William, uh, he was about 12 or so years old, to live with his aunt and uncle. And his, his aunt and uncle were devout believers, uh, but William's parents were not aware of this yet. They had become believers um, and become very, very passionate about Jesus. And they began to raise William in this atmosphere. Uh, about Jesus, taking him to Bible studies, taking him to opportunities to see Jesus work in people's lives. But then his parents found out that he was being raised by people who uh, were not going along with the Church of England, but were devout believers in Jesus. And so they brought him back and refused to allow him to see his aunt and uncle again. And uh, so he was raised then again by his parents. He went off to school and he uh, uh, lived a, a not very holy life, we'll say it that way. But he met some very uh, um, influential people in his life while he was at school. And they all decided to run for government, uh, for office in parliament about the same time in their 20s. And most of them got a seat in parliament. One of those guys actually went on to become, uh, I believe, one of, if not the youngest prime minister in the history of England, uh, William Pitt, the younger. And they went to Parliament, they got their seat, and then at one point they, they went on vacation. And as they're on vacation, they're having lots of conversations, and some of William Wilberforce's friends were believers, and they had lots of conversations about Jesus. And one of them turned him on to this book, and he was reading this book on the way back home and having conversations with his friends. And he writes about reading this book and in the, in the carriage on the way back to his house, he came to faith in Jesus just right there on the road. That was, I have it down here in my notes. It was in the year 1785 he believed in Jesus. Well, during this process of being a member of parliament, now believing in Jesus, he began to see that he could have phenomenal influence in people's lives, uh, 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 directing them towards the cause of Christ. And his heart was opened up with great compassion on a myriad of people, namely at that particular time, Slaves. Slavery was rampant in the world, just as it is today, but in a different way in that, in that day and time. And he just could not believe that they had tolerated slavery for so long. That Jesus had loved him, he needs to love everyone just the same. 
And so that, it took him two years. He began to develop this, or Jesus developed this within him. And he began to give speeches then, talking about how terrible slavery was. That was in 1787 in England. No one was talking about it yet, publicly. You, you didn't talk about this issue publicly in this way because there was a big, powerful lobbying group or groups pro-slavery. But Wilberforce didn't care about that. What he cared about was that Jesus had put them in him and he wasn't going to stop. And so he began to give speech after speech. He began to try to pass legislation. And then he gathered some people around him and they came up with this idea, well, well people are so resistant to stopping slavery outright. We need to develop a process here to, to outlaw slavery. And so they began to work this issue. Now, again, remember, that started in the 1780s, all right? We didn't abolish slavery until the 1860s here. And so this was a, a full 80 years before us. He's fighting this cause. And he was getting yelled at and screamed at. He was getting terrible things sent to his house. He was getting yelled. I don't know if you've ever watched discussion in Parliament. I mean, you think our Congress yelling at each other is bad. In, in, in Parliament, you have... Uh, the opposing political parties, they sit across from each other and face each other. And it's not like you take a turn and talk. It's you talk and everybody screams while you talk. It, there's not a whole bunch of, you know, rule going on. You got this real big important person sit there, supposed to be conducting the room. But there's lots of yelling, lots of screaming, lots of throwing stuff going on over there in Parliament. And so Wilberforce is getting up and he's giving these speeches. And people are saying all kinds of nasty stuff about him while he's giving these speeches. And he's getting lots of counseling and advice from his pastor, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And he goes through this process. So he started in 1787. Uh, about 20 so years later, I have it here too. Uh, it, was, it was in 1807. 20 years, exactly. They finally got this one piece of legislation passed to where they abolished the slave trade. They didn't abolish slavery outright. At first, but they were able to abolish the slave trade, which meant that the people couldn't take their ships down to Africa and kidnap people anymore. It was against the law in England as a result of William Wilberforce. But he kept fighting to, to make incremental steps. His ultimate goal, because of what Jesus had put in his heart, his ultimate goal was to get rid of slavery altogether. Well, he kept fighting. He ended up having to take a break from politics for a while because his health got so bad as a result of the stress and the anxiety. And he went to the country and he was taking this break. But then the situation in Parliament, without him there spearheading the cause, got so bad, people would start to make a pilgrimage out to his country house, appealing to him, begging him to come back, saying, you've got to come back. This thing is, is going to die without you in there. Well, God gave him the fortitude and he got up and he went back to Parliament and he fought and he fought and he fought. But his health got so bad, finally in 1825, he had to resign, retire from Parliament without slavery being abolished yet. But he knew even though he could not be in the room in Parliament doing this anymore, he still went all over the country decrying slavery, uh, giving speeches against slavery, talking about how bad it was. He continued to work the back channels with some of his political buddies to try to get this thing outlawed because of what Jesus put in his heart. And he came up with roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, but he did not stop. He just kept going. He wasn't going to stop because of what Jesus put in him. 
And then a few years pass. 1833 comes around. And his health is at its worst possible that it can be. He's on his deathbed. Summer of 1833. And even in the summer of 1833, he's still sending letters. He's still having messengers come to his house and, and, and sending them out to try to get this thing done. And finally, and he's August of 1833, somebody comes to his house and they say, we have a bill that's passed both houses of parliament. We are just days away from this thing being finalized. And it's going to abolish slavery completely. Wilberforce exhaled, and three days later he died. And the bill was finalized just a couple weeks after that. You see, he fought for 40, was it, seven years to get this thing done because of what Jesus put in him. Sometimes it is difficult to keep going after something when we're faced with opposition after opposition or roadblock after roadblock, and it seems like we're making no headway at all. And you ask the question then, how can we keep going? When you see a guy like William Wilberforce without no stopping, full speed ahead, um, he did have to take a break for a little bit, but God picked him back up and took him back. And he was able to do something, the first of its kind in the world, in the abolition of slavery. A good 50 years before we were able to do it. All because of what Jesus put in him. So let's look today in Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> Asking the question, how can we keep going? We're going to look at that from a, a unique perspective. You see, we've been looking these past several weeks about Jesus making the turn from his ministry and, and the things he did specifically on the road back to Jerusalem to be crucified. We, we started a few weeks ago. Jesus was, was approached by a rich young ruler. And Jesus told the man, if you want to follow me, you have to... Uh, sell all your possessions and give all your money to the poor. And the guy wasn't going to do that, wasn't going to sacrifice anything for Jesus. And so he turned away and went away sad. We saw Jesus approached by ten lepers. And Jesus uh, sent them to uh, uh, show themselves to the priest. On the way they were healed, one of them comes back, who's a Samaritan, and, and gives great praise and gratitude to Jesus. And, uh, and then Jesus um, uh, says some great things about this man and sends him on his way. And so Jesus, on his way back to Jerusalem, and he's having all these encounters on the journey, when he gets pretty close to Jerusalem now, where we're going to look today in Luke chapter 19, he gets to a city called Jericho, which is just a few miles away. And uh, Luke 19, starting in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Y'all ever heard of Zacchaeus? Anybody? You know the famous song about Zacchaeus? He was a what? Wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Sing it. You come sing it, Don. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not warmed up. I'm not warmed up. Uh, so Zacchaeus is a tax, a chief tax collector. Tax collectors were notorious for government-approved extortion. The government allowed them to, to steal money and do whatever they want as long as they sent the right amount of money back to the government. 
And the, the Jewish leaders of the day even had in their teaching specific instructions about tax collectors. That if a tax collector gave you some sort of charitable giving, you, you could not receive it in the tax collector's office because it was assumed that the money was dirty money if the tax collector's given it to you in his office. Also, if the tax collector ever walked into your house, everything in your house was then considered unclean because of the presence of the tax collector. And if the tax collector had the gall to walk into the temple, it was, it was considered chief defilement for him to do that. They, they, they did not like tax collectors very much at all. And they had, a, I mean, it was a stereotype, and it, it was a, as we see in archaeological records, it was an accurate stereotype. They did steal, most of them. They did do ill-gotten things. And so here you have Zacchaeus, he's in this town of Jericho, and he's known as a chief tax collector. So he had guys working under him who stole, and then he stole on top of that. And everybody knew him in town. Imagine the city of Dequeen, and we had a guy in town that everybody knows steals from them. But nobody arrests him because it's legal. Would y'all like this guy very much if you see him down the aisle at Walmart? You see him reaching for the macaroni, you're going to grab the last box before he gets it? Kind of a situation. And so Zacchaeus, and so this is setting us up here with, with this man, Zacchaeus. Uh, verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So something has awoken within Zacchaeus. This man who is considered the dregs of society. Something within him wants to see Jesus. Something within him wants to get to Jesus. And Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And where they're at now, they're just a few hours out walking distance from Jerusalem. And he wants to see Jesus. He, he, he hears Jesus is coming through on his way to Jerusalem. There's this massive crowd, this huge crowd of people. Everywhere they go, they get added to the number of people following Jesus, going uh, to Jerusalem. It's this massive parade. And, and he hears Jesus coming through town, and he wants to get out there to see him. But he can't quite get to the road, the main road through Jericho, because there's so many people. And he's not a very tall guy to see over the crowd. And so... What does he do? Verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So a couple things here in this verse. Um, they still do this today in some cities in the Middle East, but back then it was especially true. Uh, 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 and we have uh, found it in Jericho. Along the road, they lined the road with these sycamore trees. And so sycamore trees were all along the road here going through Jericho. But look at what Zacchaeus does. He does two things that are inappropriate. First off, he runs. You weren't supposed to run, particularly if you were somebody who was well-to-do. You didn't have any reason to run. You paid people to do that for you. You didn't need to run. It was inappropriate. If you ran, your, your robe might fly up, and you definitely weren't supposed to climb a tree. That was a big no-no. People might see up your robe. You weren't supposed to do that. In no way. And so, but look at what Zacchaeus does. He both runs and he climbs a sycamore tree. He doesn't care what people think about him right here. Because what does he want to do? He just wants to see Jesus. And so what people, I mean, people already think terrible things about him. He said, what else are they going to think about me if I climb this tree? 
But all that's in his mind, he's not thinking, what are people going to think if they see me running? What are people going to think if they see me climbing this tree? All he's thinking about is, I've got to get to Jesus. And so he runs way in front of the parade, way in front of the crowd to, to this uh, head on the main road where he knows they're coming. And he gets a good spot up in a sycamore tree so that he can see over everybody when they make their way down there. Because he just wants to be close enough to see Jesus. And the crowd's coming. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So Jesus stops the parade and speaks to Zacchaeus, Mr. Chief Tax Collector, Mr. Steal a Bunch of Money Man. Jesus stops everybody, and everybody, everybody might be thinking, oh, he's about to cut Zacchaeus down. <laughs> this is, this is going to be good. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I am going to your house today. Remember, if a tax collector comes in your house, everything is unclean. Here is Jesus. The epitome of, of spiritual cleanliness, purity, in front of this entire crowd saying, I'm going into his house today. Look at what Zacchaeus does. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now this, there's a lot implied, I think, in this verse. If you're up in a tree and you hurry and come down, what are you most likely doing? You're going to fall, or you're going to jump out and fall and splat. And so Zacchaeus, up in a tree, already does the inappropriate thing, and he runs, already climbs the tree. What else can go wrong? He hurries and comes down, and he pops out of this tree. And it says he receives him joyfully. Imagine the joy that's not just on his face, but it's in his posture, it's in his demeanor, it's in how he runs up and hugs Jesus. He just cannot. He, he does not have the words or the, 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 he doesn't have enough body movements to express how joyful he is right now. And so he expresses this phenomenal joy. Jesus is coming to my house. Hopefully he sends a messenger to tell his wife they're coming. But he jumps down and he receives him joyfully. But look at what happens. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, it doesn't really come across in English, but in the original language, that word sinner is a derogatory term. It's, a, it's, like, a, it's like what today would be a no-no word. Like, you don't say that word. They're saying that about Zacchaeus. Man, this man is a sinner. And he's, Jesus is going into his house? No! So they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're saying things under their breath about Zacchaeus and about Jesus and his association with a man like Zacchaeus. How can he go and be with somebody who's like that? Who's one of those people? You ever heard somebody say something like that about those people? Well, that's what they're talking about here. But for Jesus, there is no those people. And he's in there knowing people are saying what they're saying. But his issue, Jesus' issue, isn't what people think of him. Jesus' issue is this man needs salvation. And so he goes in there to be the guest of Zacchaeus. Uh, and so they're in there, they're eating, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. 
And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I restore it fourfold. He says, I'm going to take half of everything I own, all my property, all my goods, all my food, uh, all the stuff that I've accumulated, and I'm just going to uh, give it away. Give it, give it to the poor. All of it. Half of all of it. And then... He says, I've got some good records because I'm a tax collector and I've got to send stuff to the government. If, if I have defrauded anyone, and you can hear the people just outside going, if. He says, I'm going to give it back four times as much. And so Zacchaeus is doing something unique here. I don't know how many of you remember three weeks ago when we were in Luke chapter 18. Just one chapter before this. Zacchaeus does what the rich young ruler did not do. The rich young ruler wouldn't sacrifice anything to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus doesn't have to be told, I need to sacrifice something to follow Jesus. He just does it. He says, I'm going to give it away because I don't care about the stuff. I don't care about the money. All I care about is Jesus, so I'm just going to get rid of it all. And for Zacchaeus, you know, notice he says, I'm going to give away half my goods and I'm going to give people four times. He didn't say, I'm going to give everything away because the issue isn't giving everything away. The issue is one of priority, the one of sacrifice and one of generosity. And so the rich young ruler wasn't willing to sacrifice anything because he loved his stuff more than he wanted to follow Jesus. But Zacchaeus wants to follow Jesus faithfully more than he wants his stuff. And so he said, I'm going to give it away. Half of all my stuff, I'm going to give people four times as much as I stole from them, and I'm going to give it freely and willingly. Verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That phrase, son of Abraham, is very interesting. Very interesting, especially in the context of Zacchaeus coming and getting saved. Son of Abraham doesn't necessarily have to mean that he was a Jew. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that to be a son of Abraham is to be a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And so what Zacchaeus is demonstrating is that he is following Jesus. And so, and so Jesus says, okay, because of your belief, just like Abraham, it was said he believed and was declared righteous before God. He was believed and was declared saved before God. You're doing the same thing right here, Zacchaeus. You are believing. Giving the money and the stuff wasn't the salvation at all. That was a demonstration of the change that had taken place within him. Because if we've been saved, there ought to be a change. There ought to be something different about us. That doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. That doesn't mean we're not going to stumble and do, do wrong things on occasion. But that should mean that that's not our desire anymore. And so Zacchaeus is demonstrating that within him and wanting to get rid of all of that stuff. And so he's following after Jesus by getting rid of his stuff. But it all started, really, this attitude of wanting to, to follow Jesus with his desire to want to get to Jesus no matter what. Want to see Jesus no matter what. Run, climb the tree, jump down from the tree, run up and hug Jesus. It all started with him wanting to come to Jesus. 
Because he understood a principle that sometimes we have a hard time with even today. That Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all this stuff will be added unto you. All these things will be added unto you. And if you seek Jesus, everything you need will be taken care of. All the needs that you have, not, not necessarily the wants. I mean, sometimes Jesus does take care of the wants. He goes over and above in his generosity and in his, as his excess, his abundance. Uh, but what he says there in Matthew chapter 6 is seek first the kingdom of heaven. Seek first Jesus, and he'll take care of all the rest of the stuff. You see, that's what Zacchaeus is seeing. He's going to seek first Jesus, give away half of all his stuff, give away four times as much money as he's stolen. Imagine how much money he's going to have left over if he's given away four times as much as he's stolen. He's probably not going to have a whole lot of money left. <laughs> but he's going to seek first Jesus and allow Jesus to provide everything that he needs from this point forward. Oh, it's because for him, it's all about seeking Jesus. It's all about coming to Jesus. It's all about getting to Jesus. Even if all these people think what they're going to think about him. He can't change. He's a sinner. He can't change. He's running down the road, climbing trees, jumping out of trees. He, 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 he is the, the most despicable man in the whole town. But Zacchaeus wasn't trying to make people happy anymore. Not that he was before. He was trying to make Jesus happy. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if I were trying to make people happy, then I would not be trying to make God happy. You can't do both. He says, so I'm going to try to make God happy. That was what Zacchaeus was trying to do. He was trying to get to Jesus, trying to see Jesus, no matter what. And the thing about Jesus is he's always ready and willing for anybody who will come to him. He's always ready and willing for anybody who will come to him. Anybody and everybody. He's ready for them to come to him. And so our response to that should be to do everything we can to get to Jesus. Do everything we can to get to Jesus. No matter what stands in our way, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what we have to do to get to Jesus, Zacchaeus just wanted to see him. And Jesus changed his life that day. Just wanted to see him. Let's mess in your business a little bit. Do everything you can to get to Jesus. Do everything you can to see Jesus. I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hands. So don't raise your hand. Do not raise your hands. Just think in your minds. When it comes to spending time with Jesus every day, do you do everything you can to get to Jesus? You get up early enough to do everything you can to get to Jesus? Do you set time aside to get to Jesus? I know I don't always do this. It's, it's a hard deal. Sometimes if we don't make the decision ahead of time, we allow the decision to be made for us because we stay up late scrolling. We stay up late flipping through social media. We stay up late streaming. And then our sleep hits. And in our sleep stupor, we don't hear the alarm go off. And we're waking up in a panic because we got to get to where we got to get because we didn't wake up in time to spend time with Jesus. Well, and we start cutting things out when we wake up late. I got to cut out time with Jesus. I got to cut out a shower. I don't have time for a shower. Uh, I got to cut out breakfast. I don't have time for breakfast. Uh, I've got to cut all this stuff out. But the essentials, I got to get coffee and I got to get to work. I got to get coffee and I got to get to school. I got to go where I'm going. And so we, we cut out the things we consider non-essential and we only do the essential and get to where we're going. 
But what if I were to suggest to do everything we can to get to Jesus would mean Jesus is the essential and the starting place. It's similar to like when you're creating a budget for yourself. When you're creating a budget for yourself and you know you need to give to the Lord, you know you need to tithe and go over and above. And if you don't do that first on the budget sheet, on the spreadsheet, you save that part to last, there's never going to be enough to give, ever, ever. But I can guarantee you this, Jesus promises it, we read a second ago in Matthew chapter 6, that if you do that first, give to Jesus, put that at the top line of your spreadsheet, and then you put the priorities, okay, God, give to Jesus, okay, and then, then pay for the house, and, and then pay for, for food, and then pay for gas for the car, and, and you start going down your list of priorities, but you make Jesus the number one essential, there's always enough when you get to the bottom of the list, always. But if we begin to do this with our schedule and our time and do everything we can to get to Jesus and put Jesus as the number one essential and structure everything around Jesus, then we're going to have more than enough time to do what we need to do. If it works in money, it works in time because God created both. So if you think, okay, if I need to spend time with Jesus, how much time do I need to spend time with Jesus? Okay, I need this X amount of time. It takes me X amount of time to get through my Bible app. Uh, I can put the listen on two times as fast, and I can get done twice as fast. And it takes me this much time to pray. And, and, and the more you time you spend with Jesus, that time will expand. But just start and just start at some point and say, okay, I need, let's just say five minutes. I just need to get five minutes with Jesus. I need to read some scripture. I need to pray. I got to have a starting place. Let's just do this. So you need five minutes, you need X amount of time to get the kids ready for school, you need X amount of time to get you ready for work, you need X amount of time then to drive and get them to these places, and they got to be here by this time. And so you back that up, okay, if I gotta get, that means i got to start my time with Jesus by this time in order to get all that other stuff done. And to start my time with Jesus by this time, that means I need uh, to, to go to bed at this time. That mean, I, I, and here's the thing, if, if this is number one priority, Bedtime is going to be a hard and fast rule if you want to get up and spend time with Jesus in the morning. Because if you push it, I'm going to speak from experience, all right? I'm the preacher. I'm speaking from experience here. You push that hard and fast rule that I know I've got in my mind. I know if I go past this, that alarm's not waking me up, and it's just not going to happen. I, I know it. Just like I know in the morning, if I wake up within one hour before my alarm, it, every time, it happens every single time. If I ever wake up within one hour margin before my alarm goes off and I choose to go back to sleep, I'm missing the alarm. And I don't have one alarm set. Anybody got more than one alarm set on your phone, on your watch? I've got something like 15. All right? And, and it starts, it goes like a five-minute increment and then two-minute increments after that. And I, I don't know what it is, but if I, if I wake up, whether biology waking me up or a kid waking me up or something waking me up, within one hour of my alarm and I go back to sleep, I'm missing every single one of those alarms. I mean, without fail, they're all gone out the window. Um, I'm back in the REM sleep and, and the, the, the watch vibrating on my arm is a part of my dream now. And it's, it's just not going to happen. And so I know that about myself. That if I wake up, I got to get up. Otherwise, I'm not spending time with Jesus today. I got to get up. Otherwise, this is, it's just not going to happen. And so I've built this hard and fast rule within my mind. It doesn't always work. Sometimes I completely fail. Uh, but I know that if I don't go to bed by a certain time, I'm not waking up. 
at a certain time. Sometimes I push that limit and I'm begging to Jesus as I fall asleep, wake me up in the morning, Jesus, please, please, Jesus, wake me up. Wake me up, Jesus, wake me up. And I'm out. That's one of my spiritual gifts is being able to fall asleep anywhere. Uh, uh, and, and just wanting to get up because I know that if I don't spend time with Jesus in the morning, my day is shot. I mean, it's, it's, it's out the window. Attitudes are bad. I feel exhausted all day long. I, 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 I don't think properly if I don't spend time with Jesus. I feel like I'm trying to play catch up all day because I didn't start it the way it's supposed to be started. And so if you're going to do everything you can to get to Jesus, that may mean we have to reprioritize a few things. You've got to shake them up a little bit. What really matters the most? What's at the top of your priority list as far as your daily schedule goes? Is it Jesus? Is it like Zacchaeus? He was going to run down the street. He was going to climb that tree. He's going to jump out of the tree just because Jesus is his number one priority. It's not the money. It's not what people think. It's Jesus. Are we going to be like Zacchaeus there in Luke 19? Or are we going to have different priorities, different things we're going to pursue? We have to do everything we can to get to Jesus. So that means we don't let anything stop us, anything get in the way of us getting to Jesus. If your primary, if your primary source of scripture intake is, is your, your phone and you have a you have trouble not clicking on social media before you click on scripture. Well, then maybe you need to go to a more analog form of scripture uh, if, if that's a struggle for you. Because we need to not let anything get in the way of us getting to Jesus. Nothing can get in the way of us getting to Jesus. But the thing about that is, you see, getting to Jesus, this, this Christian life, this spiritual life, it's not an individual race. It's a team sport. We're supposed to work it together, pursue it together, pray for one another, encourage one another on the journey so we can keep going at this together. I read a story yesterday in one of the best books I have read in years. I'm going to talk about it next week. Um, but it was about the great evangelist D.L. Moody uh, back in the 1800s when he got saved he compiled a list of 100 names of family and friends of people he knew were lost and needed Jesus. And he kept that list with him everywhere he went. And he prayed by name every one of those 100 people every single day, throughout the day, as he went about his crazy schedule. He prayed for these 100 people constantly for decades. I mean, we're talking 50 plus years. He's praying for this 100 names. Well, then he dies. And at his funeral, they have that list, and they, they, they see the list in his pocket. They pull it out, and there's check marks by 96 of the names. 96 of the 100 people got saved. Can you imagine a prayer life that has a 96% approval rate? That's pretty good. Well, at his funeral, the last four got saved. He was not going to give up praying for these people. He was going to keep going because of what Jesus has put in him. He knew that these people needed the word of God. He knew these people needed the gospel. And he was going to start with prayer. And he did not give up to the moment he died. 
And so we've got to work it together. You know, in Acts chapter 15, James, the brother of Jesus, speaks to this. Because there were some people in the church, in the Jerusalem Christian church, that were having a problem with certain kind of people coming in the church. And so they made certain kind of rules that those people had to follow in order to be a part of the church. And that, those rules were, yes, believe in Jesus, plus do all this other stuff. And so James, the brother of Jesus, stands up. After Peter has talked, after Paul has talked, James stands up and he says this, Acts 15, verse 19. He says, therefore I judge to not cause extra difficulty to the unbelievers turning to God. He says, it's my conclusion that we should not cause extra difficulty for unbelievers turning to God because there's already plenty of difficulty in the world of people to keep them from God. We Christians should not make it extra difficult. We should pave the way to Jesus. We should make it as easy as possible because the gospel is easy. It's just believing in Jesus. That's as, as easy as it gets. It's not about doing a bunch of extra stuff. It's not about paying a bunch of extra stuff. It's just about believing in Jesus. And so James tells everybody this, and they, they finally get there with James. Say, yes, we agree with you. We shouldn't make it difficult. We shouldn't make it hard for anyone trying to get to Jesus. And so not only do we need to do everything for us to get to Jesus, we need to do everything we can to help others get to Jesus. Everything we can to help other people get to Jesus. Whatever that may be. That can be... Something in their own lives, that means removing any potential obstacles out of people's way, even obstacles that are within ourselves. Even obstacles that are within ourselves from preventing other people from coming to Jesus. Maybe how we respond to other people. Maybe, like we said a minute ago in that song, we need to get rid of some of the mental traditions we have in our minds. You know, we had a guy in church one time who was, is that the right word, is accosted by somebody else in the church because he was wearing a hat in this room. And I talked to the, the guy who approached the young man um, later that week, and uh, the guy, the, the, the man, member of the church, was weeping because he realized what he had done. He had turned the young man, the, and the young man has not been back to church since. Turned him off. Because he came just as he was. <laughs> and I had somebody come up to me uh, within the last year and complain about somebody wearing a hat. And I, I asked the man, I said, is that in Scripture? I said, because what I see in Scripture is Jesus reaching to everybody just as they are. I see Jesus reaching to people how they are. God actually said in Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I'm not about to tell anybody they shouldn't be walking through those doors if they're coming in the doors wanting to get to Jesus. However they're dressed, however they're coming. They're coming to Jesus. We need to celebrate that. They're wearing a hat, fine. They're wearing beat up jeans, great. They're, this past <laughs> uh, Tuesday, I had a burn pile out in my driveway trying to, in between storms, in between rains, trying to burn some stuff that hadn't been able to burn for weeks because it's been raining every single day. And I got a little too close, a little too uh, robust in trying to burn it, and I burned a hole in one of my shoes. 
And the preacher of the church came to Wednesday night Bible study with holy shoes. <laughs> I still wear them. I wore them this morning going out seeing if we had any hail damage. Um, but they're good shoes. I like them. I'm not wearing them right now. Uh, somebody gave me these shoes, actually. These are, they, they said, use, use these when you preach. So these are my preaching shoes. Uh, so I'm not about to go do a burn pile in my preaching shoes because they, they watch this tomorrow, and they're going to be like, why weren't you wearing those shoes? <laughs> okay. I appreciate my shoes, Mom. Thank you. Um, and so uh, <laughs> we got way off target on that one. Um, we need to do everything we can to get people to Jesus. No matter what they're wearing, no matter how they come, they need Jesus. Everybody does. Everybody does. That's why James says there in, in Acts 15, we don't need to cause extra difficulty. Extra difficulty. We don't need to make it extra hard. We don't need to make it complicated because it's not complicated. Jesus made it easy. You just believe. That's it. You just believe in Jesus. God's son came and died so all your sins would be forgiven. He rose from the dead so you can live after you die. That's it. You just believe. And then you're sealed and held up in God's hand for all time. If you just believe, then you get Jesus. Then you get eternity. Then you get salvation. Then you get heaven. If you just believe, anybody and everybody can come to Jesus. Even somebody like Zacchaeus. That's what Jesus was trying to illustrate. Not just for the crowd that was around him that were grumbling, but for his own disciples. He wanted them to see this deal. Everybody can come. Everybody. Even somebody like Zacchaeus that everybody thought was the worst of the worst. I mean, one of Jesus' own disciples was a tax collector. Matthew, he wasn't a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus. But imagine the message it sent to Matthew when Jesus went into the home of Zacchaeus. Because you know people talked about Matthew. You know some of those other disciples said stuff about Matthew. And when Jesus walks into a chief tax collector's house, he's saying, I love Matthew. Jesus wants everybody to come and believe. So removing any potential obstacle from ourselves, any potential obstacle from somebody else so they can get to Jesus. Do anything we can to get people to Jesus. Don't let anything get in the way or stop someone from getting to Jesus. Do everything we can to get them to Jesus. And so there's some questions then. Do you need to come to Jesus today in some capacity, in some way? Do you need to come to Jesus today? Maybe you need to come to Jesus for the first time and believe in him, that he, God's son, died so all your sins would be forgiven, right? raising from the dead so you can live after you die. Maybe you need to believe in that today for the first time. Maybe you need to come to Jesus because what's been getting in your way has been messing up your life big time. Maybe it's some expectation that's in the back of your mind that's been planted there. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. And you need to drop it at the feet of Jesus and come to him. Surround yourself with people to help you because you can't do it by yourself. Maybe what's preventing you is self-inflicted. It's a barrier you have set up. What are people going to think? They see me coming in this way. Well then, take on the spirit of Zacchaeus. Just a minute, I'm going to pray. The music team's going to come. Spirit of Zacchaeus, when I pray, you need to come to Jesus, you start running. You say, man, we're not, you know, 
Pentecostal? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I don't see in, in Scripture anywhere where it says, you know, Baptists aren't allowed to run or, or jump or yell. or I don't see that. If anything, it's the opposite. We're supposed to be doing more of that. I mean, David's dancing in the street and Holy Spirit's coming. And guys are running around telling people about Jesus. It's crazy town. We need we, if, if Jesus is getting a hold of you and you've got something you need to drop, you come running. Just come running. If you're coming from the back, be careful. It's kind of slanted, so you might trip. But just get up and keep coming. Come down here in just a minute. I'm going to pray. If you need to come and believe, I'll be here at the front. Jared will be at the back. We'd love to talk to you. love to pray with you. If you need to come and, and just drop on your knees and pray, pray for yourself that you've got something that has been preventing you from coming to Jesus, preventing you from giving everything to Jesus. And you need to come and give it up. Come and give it up. If you've got something in your purse or if you've got something in your pocket right now that you need to give up to Jesus, you can come and leave it on these steps and nobody's going to think anything of it. Nobody's going to think anything. You leave it on the steps and we'll get rid of it. I promise you. If, if, if Jesus has something, you, you, since I've been talking, you've felt it burning in your pocket. You need to come and get rid of it. Come and get rid of it. And we'll take care of it. Right, Lynette? We'll get rid of it. In some way, some way, shape, or form, it'll be gone. Whatever you need to do to get to Jesus, get there. Take the barriers away. Take the blockages away. Take the thoughts of what are people going to think away. That doesn't matter. Just get to Jesus. And so if you need to come to Jesus for the first time, you come. You need to come to Jesus and you need to give something up. You need to sacrifice something like Zacchaeus. You need to, to remove an obstacle, do everything you can to get to Jesus. Then you come in that way now. So I'm going to pray. Music team's going to do the sneaky thing and come up during the prayer, which they're supposed, we ask them to. It's not bad. But when I say amen, if you need to come to Jesus, that's your cue. You with me? I say, amen, you need to come to Jesus, you come. Maybe what you need to do when I say amen is you need to come and pray desperately for somebody in your life who's having a hard time coming to Jesus, who has something that, that, that they can't get rid of, some, some kind of blockage in their spiritual arteries that are preventing them from coming to Jesus. And you need to come and fall on your knees and beg for them. However you need to come, you come. Y'all pray with me. God, I thank you for, I thank you for Zacchaeus. And I thank you for Luke, including that interaction. And I thank you for, for Jesus reaching out to Zacchaeus in that so public way. God, I pray that there's stuff in our lives that are preventing us from coming with everything we've got, that are preventing us, that, that, that are barriers, that are obstacles, standing in our way. 
that you, in your supernatural strength, would, would enable us to remove those things so we can see you like Zacchaeus did. See you who is ready and willing always to receive anybody and everybody. God, help us to come. Come to you. No matter who we are. No matter what status we have built up in our mind. No matter how long we've been a Christian. No matter if we need to become a Christian. We would come to you. Right now. In your name I pray. Amen.